Hi everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. We are about to get into the second of the Apollo podcast. I'm very excited about this. Getting into all the different missions of Apollo. Obviously some of them I'm going to spend more time on than others. And I'm going to do my best to keep it short. But I'm going to just apologize in advance in case this one goes over my normal 45 minute to 55 minute timeline. There's a lot to cover. I'm going to do my best to keep it under the timeline that I usually set out, but I can't promise anything. little housekeeping note here. I have decided to start trying to post more pictures on my Facebook page. So after you listen to this episode, if you want to go to my Facebook page, that's Curiosity Chronicles, you can see pictures that are pertinent to the episode. I'll try to per- post uh, pictures of the crew and different pictures that were taken from space during the missions. So if you're interested in that, go to the Curiosity Chronicles on Facebook, and while you're there, Make sure you hit the like and follow button. I appreciate it. But let's get into this. It is time for part two of Project Apollo. We're going to talk about the missions. So, without further ado, I am the host of the Curiosity Chronicles. My name is Brett Bielsma, and this is what I have been curious about lately. After the tragedy of Apollo 1, there needed to be some test flights. And for whatever reason, there was no such thing as Apollo 2 or 3. And then 4, 5, and 6 were unmanned test launches. So the first manned flight of the Apollo program was Apollo 7. Wally Shira was the commander of Apollo 7. He became the first and only person to fly in all three projects. Project Gemini, well... Project Mercury first, then Gemini, and then Apollo. And he was joined by two rookies, Walt Cunningham and Don Eisel. I think is how you pronounce his name. And they launched on October 11, 1968. They had a pretty simple mission, if anything in space can be classified as simple. They stayed in orbit around the Earth, and they were basically there to test out the command and service module. This is the first manned flight of the Apollo program and obviously with the Apollo program getting off to a fairly tragic start they needed to make sure that the command and service module or the CSM worked properly to continue on and it was successful things worked quite well they had worked out the bugs they were in a safe and well-made spacecraft and the mission lasted for 11 days But just because the spacecraft was working properly does not mean this mission was altogether excellent. 15 hours into the mission, Wally Shira developed a quite severe head cold, and it was soon caught by Eisel and Cunningham. Now in zero-g, a cold is even worse than it would be on Earth because there is no gravity, which means the mucus to be very gross, just accumulates in your face. It doesn't drain out of your nose. I can't even imagine. It's just in your sinuses. And the only way that they could relieve the pressure in their head, face, ears, everything, was to basically pinch their nose and blow. God, it just sounds awful. Imagine having the worst cold of your life and then Imagine it in space where you can't really blow your nose. Sounds horrid. So by the end of the mission, these dudes were cranky. And that is putting it lightly. They had done some TV broadcasts, uh, first live TV broadcast from space, actually. And they'd accomplished their mission, but they were just done with it. PO'd, ticked off. And especially Shira was in a particularly foul mood. Now, Wally Shira had reason beyond just the cold to be a little bit more feisty than he used to be. He was kind of the jokester and he was 
a kind of a prankster, goofy kind of guy. He was also extraordinarily good friends with Gus Grissom, if I remember correctly. And he was hit very hard by the Apollo 1 tragedy, more so than everybody else within NASA. And so he had gotten, after that tragedy, a little bit uh, more hard to live with, I guess we'd call it. And that came out especially in this mission. So things were deteriorating between Apollo 7 crew and the Houston controllers. They were arguing, things were getting heated, and the loop from the air-to-ground radio is public. And so the news agencies knew that things were getting feisty. And when they were getting ready for re-entry, Houston wanted the crew to wear their helmets. They wanted to make sure that if there was some sort of catastrophic loss of cabin pressure, that the astronauts would be safe because they'd have their helmets on. It was standard procedure. Shara refused to wear his helmet, and the rest of the crew followed his lead. He was afraid that if he couldn't pinch his nose and blow, that his eardrums would rupture because of the head cold and also from a change in pressure as they re-entered the atmosphere. It was basically a mutiny. They were ordered to put their helmets on, and they just said, we are not going to do it. And in a fairly unprecedented event, Deke Slayton got on the uh, capsule communication and said, basically, well, I can't make you do it, but we're going to talk about this when you get back. But they survived. They were fine. They did not wear their helmets. They splashed down safely. And it was a successful mission. But there were consequences. Wally Sharon didn't really care. He had already announced his retirement from Apollo and NASA before this flight. So his insubordination didn't really have any consequences. But Cunningham and Eisel never flew in space again. They suffered the consequences of their mutiny and the testiness that they displayed throughout the entire flight, and they were done. In Eisel's case, though, he had a double whammy, because this was in the early, excuse me, the late 1960s. He was having an extramarital affair at the time of the flight, and as we've discussed in the past, NASA hates bad press, and so he was also put on the ground. He was he was taken off flight status because they did not want a scandal from his extramarital affair and then his subsequent divorce later on. So Apollo 7, successful mission in terms of the objectives, not a very successful mission in terms of PR and just crew and Houston relations. Apollo 8 turned out to be a very successful mission, but it was not the mission that was originally planned. So originally, Apollo 8 was comprised of Jim McDivitt as the commander, Dave Scott was the command module pilot, and Rusty Schweikart was the lunar module pilot. I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm horrible with names. Even if I hear him multiple times, it just brain to mouth doesn't work. So I think his name is Rusty Schweikart, but I apologize if I get that wrong. He was the lunar module pilot, and the goal of Apollo 8 was to test out the lunar module, which I'll sometimes refer to as the LEM. The LEM obviously is the spidery-looking spacecraft that was going to do the actual landing on the moon, but before they were landed on the moon, they had to do a test flight in Earth orbit. And that's what Apollo 8 was going to do. Go into orbit, Jim McDivitt and Schweikert would go into the LEM, they'd fly it around, and then they'd redock and, and come back to Earth. They'd work out the kinks. Apollo 8 was scheduled for December of 1968. And as that date was getting closer, it became very apparent that the manufacturing of the LEM was not going fast enough and that it would not be produced in time for a December 1968 flight. So it was looking like it would be either a scratch or a delay. George Lowe who was the Apollo program manager at the time, came up with a crazy suggestion. He said, forget the LEM. Let's send Apollo 8 to the moon way ahead of schedule. Not land on the moon, but let's send it to the moon. And initially it seemed like a 
crazy pipe dream, but he was convinced that it was the right dream for the time. What Lowe wanted to do is what's called a circumlunar flight with a free return trajectory. He basically wanted to loop around the moon, just straight there, loop around the dark side, and back to Earth. And a free return trajectory is a type of flight where the SPS, the Service Propulsion System, took me a second to remember what that meant, would not necessarily be needed because the SPS had not been tested that far away from Earth. And so if they needed it to break lunar orbit and it didn't work, they were in big trouble. So he was suggesting a more simple free return trajectory, which is basically they'd hit the moon, use the moon's gravity, not hit the moon. (laughs) That would be a tragedy. Shouldn't joke about that. They would fly to the moon and then they would use the moon's gravity to whip the spacecraft back to the earth. So they wouldn't need the SPS to launch them back towards earth. It was less risky and it had a better chance, Low thought, of getting approved. And Low wanted to do this because, A, they needed an admission for Apollo 8 anyway, since the LEM was not ready, but also because they were getting intelligence that the Soviets were planning on sending crafts on a similar circumlunar flight, and Low wanted to beat the Soviets to the dark side of the moon. <laughs> Come to the dark side, young Skywalker. Anyway, so, <laughs> boy, I'm really going off on a tangent here. Anyhow, eventually Lowe convinced Chris Kraft and Gene Krantz and also Bob Gilruth, who was the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center. And between those guys, they convinced the director of NASA, James Webb, and Lyndon Johnson that this was a feasible, doable mission and that they should go for it. And they actually decided that they weren't just going to do a circumlunar flight They crunched the numbers and they figured if they were going to go there anyway, they had the ability to actually orbit the moon. And Chris Kraft basically said, the SPS is either going to work or it's not. And we've built it to work. We need to trust it. And so they decided to go for orbit of the moon, not just a circumlunar free free return trajectory. Deke Slayton talked to Jim McDivitt. And he gave him the option to stay on Apollo 8 or swap missions. And he chose to swap. He wanted to stay with his crew and his original mission. They had become experts on the LEM, and that was what he wanted to do. So the crew for Apollo 8 and the Apollo 9 mission were swapped. And so the actual Apollo 8 flight was crewed by Frank Borman, who was the commander. Jim Lovell was the command module pilot, and they were the same guys that were on Gemini 7, so they had good rapport. And so that was important that they stayed together because this was a very, it was an intense mission and the crew needed to get along and work together well. And then they were rounded out by Bill Anders, who in name was the lunar module pilot, even though there was no lunar module to actually fly. He became more of the mission photographer. December 21, 1968, they launched... And fairly soon after launch, the zero gravity gave all three of them pretty severe motion sickness. So that's fun. Boy, if you think a head cold is bad in space, try throwing up in zero gravity. Never mind that, though. Christmas Eve, 1968. Three men of Apollo 8 became the first humans to enter orbit around a different celestial body. They ranged from 60 to 160 nautical miles above the surface, and they orbited the moon, taking a bunch of pictures. They were taking pictures to help with future landing sites, and they named geographic features like craters and mountains and different things that future missions could use as reference. One of the most famous pictures from the Apollo program in general is called Earthrise. I'll make sure to post that to Facebook. It is the picture of the Earth seen from what looks like the lunar surface. It's it's very interesting. It's like what we would see the moon rising on Earth, but it was the flip-flop. Very strange. 
They did a Christmas Eve broadcast from around the moon. And this is a crazy stat. Nearly 1 billion people tuned into that broadcast. That's one-fourth of the planet at that time watching that broadcast. Unbelievable. The press surrounding Apollo 8 was ridiculous. And at the end of that broadcast, they did the famous reading of the first few verses of Genesis. It's really cool. If you get a chance to listen to it, uh, I would recommend checking that out. After 10 orbits of the moon, the SPS fired properly, sent them back on a trajectory towards the Earth, and on December 27, 1968, they splashed down safely and were instantly incredibly famous and heroic figures. So that's Apollo 8. Not planned, but the first orbit and first trip in general from the Earth to the moon. By the time Apollo 9 was scheduled to launch, the LEM was manufactured and the test flight for the LEM was ready to go. So Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott, and Rusty Schweikart were back on for their mission. And it was, like I said earlier, the primary mission was to test the LEM. Now during launch, the lunar module sits in, adapt in an adapter right under the CSM, the Command and Service Module. And it is encased and protected. And during orbit, the CSM separates from the adapter. And then they have to fly, basically turn it around. And there is a docking port on the LEM that the CSM attaches to. And they can extract the lunar module from the adapter and then fly it to the moon. Although in the case of Apollo 9, they of course did not go to the moon. But they still had to do the docking and, 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 and extraction. March 3, 1969 was when they launched, and big news for Apollo, they were back to having nicknames for the flight, because now they had two different spacecraft that could potentially be flying. So for Apollo 9, the CSM was referred to as Gumdrop, don't ask me where they came up with that name, and the LEM was referred to as the Spider. Spider was an apt nickname because the LEM is pretty spidery looking. Houston needed those call signs to differentiate, so from now on, all missions will have call signs for the command module and the lunar module. Apollo 9 was a mission of firsts. It was the first time that all three components of an Apollo mission flew, the components being the Saturn V rocket, the command service module, and the lunar module. This was also the first time the command and service module and the lunar module docked in space, which makes sense because it's the first time they both flown. And it was the first time that the lunar module ascent and descent stage fired in space. Again, makes sense. Apollo 9 was also the first time that U.S. astronauts transferred from one spacecraft to another because, of course, Jim McDivitt and Rusty Schweikart had to transfer from the command module to the lunar module in order to fly the lunar module. So it was a mission of firsts, and it was a successful mission. For about six hours, McDivitt and Schweikart flew the LEM independent of the command module, and they even went out of sight of the command module, going up to 100 miles away before they redocked. They were testing out the different engines, the different maneuvers needed to eventually attempt the lunar landing, and after redocking and getting McDivitt and Schweikart back aboard the, surface, the command and service module, the LEM was jettisoned into Earth orbit, where it eventually burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. Schweikart also became the first astronaut to perform a spacewalk without being attached to a capsule's life support system. So not only were Apollo 9 astronauts testing out the lunar module, but they also needed to test out what we basically think of as the spacesuits needed for walking on the moon. So obviously when you're walking on the moon, you can't have an umbilical cord to the lunar module. It's just not feasible. So what they did was they tested out the extravehicular mobility unit, the EMU. <laughs> EMU. I love that. And the portable life support system, the PLSS. And that was the life support and the spacesuit needed for future missions to actually walk on the moon. So Schweikart was the Apollo astronaut that was the first person 
to test that and the first person to be outside of a spacecraft without the spacecraft's umbilical cord providing life support. That would have to be so scary. I know these guys probably don't think like I do necessarily. Their job is to take risks and, and they volunteer for that. But can you imagine being outside of a spacecraft for the first time testing a life support system that has never been tested before? <laughs> That's gutsy. That is gutsy. Thank goodness it worked. And good for him for testing it out. And that's a pretty courageous thing. Apollo 9 was a success all the way around the board. Everything worked properly. And March 13, 1969, they splashed down and set the stage for Apollo 10, which was a similar test flight of the LEM, except they were going to do it around the moon. Apollo 10 cracks me up. And we'll get to why in a little while. But I also feel kind of bad for the astronauts that flew on Apollo 10 because it was a full lunar mission in all aspects except for the actual landing. (laughs) So close. They launched on May 18, 1969, and the main goal was to orbit the moon and let the LEM fly in orbit around the moon as well, but independent of the command module. They needed to determine how the LEM controls worked and how the moon and especially moon's gravity affected flight. And they also needed to test the LEM's radar and trajectory program, the software that would be needed to actually land safely. The commander of the mission was Thomas Stafford, the command module pilot was John Young, and the lunar module pilot was Eugene Cernan. And the call signs were (laughs) one of the first things that cracks me up. The command module was Charlie Brown, and the lunar module was Snoopy. (laughs) This mission is one of my favorite because it's just funny. I don't know why. It's just funny. They entered orbit around the moon and they broadcast back to Earth the first color television broadcast of the moon. Not that there's much to see. It's fairly gray or brown, depending on which astronaut you ask. But it was color. It was important. It was a big step forward. Stafford and Cernan flew the LEM detached from the command module while in orbit, and they descended to roughly nine miles above the moon's surface before redocking. Nine miles. That seems like a long way off, but when you've traveled 240,000 miles, roughly, and you come within nine miles of landing on the moon, that has got to hurt. The LEM was not fully fueled. And it, from the research I've done, this is not official NASA history. It's not been proven, but Eugene Cernan has said in the past that he believes that NASA purposely did not fully fuel the LEM because they were afraid that the temptation for Stafford and Cernan would be too strong and that they would mutiny, basically, and land on the moon even though that wasn't part of the mission. (laughs) I can't imagine that would have ended well for them, but That is Cernan's belief. They did not fuel the LEM so that if they decided to break orders and land on the moon, it would be a suicide mission. Never been proven, but that would be really hilarious if it was true, I suppose. (laughs) But they came within nine miles. Big accomplishment. And Apollo 10 set some records. They're in the Guinness Book of World Records for the fastest that human beings have ever traveled in a vehicle. On their way back from the moon to the earth when they were in the pull of the earth's gravity they attained a speed there's there's two different speeds the guinness book of world record says that the speed was 24,791 miles per hour however the nasa mission reports actually states a speed of 24,816 miles per hour that is blazing fast literally faster than a bullet out of a gun that's seven miles every second Every second. Unbelievable. They were heading back to Earth. This speed was attained at roughly 400,000 miles, excuse me, 400,000 feet of altitude. So they were getting closer to the Earth and they were just cruising. Apollo 10 also had some controversy. I apologize in advance for this, but I did want to mention it. Eugene Cernan and Tom Stafford, when they were in the LEM, nine miles above the surface of the moon, They were going to practice and abort, basically. They were going to fire the ascent stage and start flying up into 
rendezvous with the command module. There was a switch in the wrong position, and when they went into the abort procedure, the LEM started going into wild and very dangerous gyrations. And Eugene Cernan, kind of forgetting that he had a mic, let out a son of a bitch. And it was broadcast to anybody that had a TV set, and NASA freaked because they didn't have the ability anymore like they did in the Mercury and early Gemini missions to edit out the air-to-ground loop. There was a seven-second delay that they used to be able to edit out any obscenities. <laughs> but the SOB from Cernan made it through because after the Apollo 1 tragedy, NASA knew that they needed to have as much transparency as possible, so they let the air-to-ground loop come through completely unedited. And from Apollo 10 onward, it was made extremely clear that from any astronaut going forward, they expected them to act like 100% gentlemen. They, they said, quote, no blue language would be tolerated. I don't know why they call it blue language, but that's what they called it. No blue language would be tolerated. Later on in Apollo 13, Jim Lovell actually got in trouble for saying frapping. I don't even know if that's a real word. But they were very strict, and it was all Eugene Cernan's fault. But aside from that, highly successful mission, splashed down on May 26, 1969. And because of the success of Apollo 10, Apollo 11 was given the green light to be the mission that everybody knows about. I would wager that most of the people listening to this podcast know about Apollo 11, but I'm going to go over it anyway, because I don't think that there would be any mission that has gone to space that is more famous than Apollo 11. It would be an absolute oversight to skip over it, obviously, even though it's well known. So Apollo 7 through 10 had gone as well as can be expected. Apollo 11 was not guaranteed to be the lunar landing. It could have been 12, 13, 14. It all depended on how the prior missions went. Because 7 through 10 went so well, Apollo 11 was given the green light. So Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins launched for the moon on July 16, 1969 aboard the Columbia, as the command module was called, and the lunar module was named the Eagle. The crew was not allowed to pick the names for their spacecraft because the last thing NASA wanted was for someone to call up that Snoopy had landed on the moon <laughs> or something similar. Apollo 10, they got to pick their name. Not the case for Apollo 11. They needed something classy. There was some slight controversy on who would be the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin. Neil was the commander Buzz was the lunar module pilot. And I don't mean to impugn anybody with this. I'm just trying to tell you as fairly as I can that Buzz Aldrin angered some people because it was interpreted that he was lobbying for being the man picked for the first step. He has gone on record saying that he wasn't lobbying for himself to be the first man but he just wanted there to be an official answer. Someone had to tell him who was going to be first because they couldn't leave it up to chance. But it wasn't seen that way. It was seen as him trying to become a historic figure, and it rubbed people the wrong way. Eventually, it was decided that Neil would be first. It was official. NASA said that Neil Armstrong would be first. He had the seniority. He was in the second class of astronauts, the new nine, and Buzz Aldrin was in the third class. But also, Neil was a little bit more calm, cool, and collected. He was very in control of his emotions, and Buzz Aldrin was a little bit more fiery, and so he was a better face for NASA PR. And just logically, in terms of logistics, Neil Armstrong would be the man in the lunar module standing closest to the hatch, and it would have been nearly impossible in the small confines of the lunar module for Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong to get prepared and then actually maneuver around each other for Buzz to go first. There just wasn't the space. 
so the man closest to the door got to go out first. On July 20, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin entered the limb and separated from the command and service module. The last 500 feet from the lunar surface, Armstrong actually flew manually, which I never actually understood. Because why was Armstrong flying the lunar module if Buzz Aldrin was the lunar module pilot? Never, that never made sense to me. But that's the case. And he was flying it and basically had to pick his landing site. They, they didn't land exactly where they meant to land originally because it was kind of an unsafe area. So he took over, flew it manually because he is an ice-cold customer who can fly anything. And they were coming dangerously close to running out of fuel. They were getting to the point where they were so close to the surface of the moon, but they were also so close to the point where if they landed, they didn't have enough fuel to take back off again and they would die on the moon. Which, interestingly enough, a speechwriter for President Nixon wrote two speeches. One if the mission was a success, and one if the mission failed and they needed to tell the American people that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would remain on the moon for eternity. That is a depressing thought. Thank goodness that speech never had to be read. At four days, five hours, 45 minutes, and 58 seconds into the mission, this is what was heard around the world. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The eagle has landed. That is enough to give you shivers. I can imagine, can't imagine watching that live. That must have been an amazing time to be an American, or even just a citizen of the world at that time. Man had landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had taken their lunar module and landed on Mare Tranquilitatis, the Sea of Tranquility. But for the rest of history, it has become known as Tranquility Base. They didn't immediately get out and start the EVA, the technical name for the moonwalk. There was a rest period built into the mission, but Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong requested and were granted the option to begin the moonwalk as soon as they were ready. But it still took some time. They rested a little bit, they got some food, and then they needed to get prepared, and that included putting on the EMU, the mobility unit, as well as the PLSS, the Portable Life Support System. That took time. So it was about three and a half hours from landing on the lunar surface to actually being able to open the hatch and start the moonwalk. So at 9.56 and 20 seconds Houston time, Neil Armstrong opened the hatch, descended the ladder, and made one of the most controversial sentences in the history of the Apollo space program. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Why is this controversial? Well, it's kind of dumb. People have said that it sounds like he says, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That sentence doesn't make sense, because one giant leap for man, or one small step for man, and one giant leap for mankind. That's the same thing, man and mankind. It's stupid, but this is a historic moment and people nitpick. Now, Neil Armstrong has said, and he 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 clung to this till the day he died, that the real audio clip should say that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. That makes sense. And audio experts have actually taken the clip from NASA and examined it, broke it down, tried to clean it up. And there are many that say that he actually does say a man, but the transmission is garbled. Some don't agree with that. I like to believe that the A was just garbled because that is more historic and it sounds better. But regardless of if he misspoke or not, that is a historic moment. And what a 
line to say as you jump from the lunar limb ladder onto the surface of a different celestial body. You are carrying the weight of mankind on your shoulders. And Neil Armstrong rose to the occasion magnificently. He was the perfect person to be the first man on the moon. So it was a small step for a man, but a giant leap for mankind stretching out into the heavens. 19 minutes after Neil Armstrong and his heroic first step, Buzz Aldrin joined him. They did not spend a lot of time on the moon. The first mission, it's always the most exciting, but also kind of the least exciting in a way. Buzz Aldrin spent about an hour and 33 minutes on the moon before he re-entered the LEM, and Armstrong joined him 41 minutes later. They collected samples, they left memorial medallions for the Apollo 1 astronauts and two Soviet cosmonauts who had passed away. They also planted the flag, and they did a broadcast and took pictures. They also left a plaque, and the plaque is really a cool thing that they left. It was attached to the descent stage of the LEM. And it read, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. And I like that. I like that it was all mankind and not just the United States. Because this was a historic moment for the world. After a rest period, Armstrong and Aldrin fired the ascent stage of the lunar module and the lunar module and the command module docked and started the journey back home. Armstrong and Aldrin spent a total of 21 hours and 36 minutes on the moon, although, of course, most of that time was inside of the LEM. They splashed down safely on July 24, 1969, and entered the history books as some of the most famous Americans to ever live. Following Apollo 11, there were multiple missions to the moon, and I'm going to go over all of them, but I'm going to not go into them as deeply as I've done some of the previous missions. I don't want to do a disservice to the accomplishment uh, and to the men who flew these missions, but at some point there's just only so many ways to say that man landed on the moon. So I'm going to kind of brush over things. If you want to read up more on these, I have source notes in the podcast description, and there are hundreds of documentaries and books that I would encourage you to read. Apollo 12, commanded by Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon, and Alan Bean, rounded out the crew, launched on November 14, 1969, date of my birthday. I'm sure they did that on purpose. Shortly after launch... They didn't find out until a little bit later, but within the first minute or so of launch, Apollo 12 was struck by lightning twice. <laughs> what are the chances? And it caused a bunch of systems to fail and data to be lost. And there was no procedure in mission control for recovery. They didn't know what was happening. And so they were about to abort when John Aaron, who was soon to become a legend in mission control, told the crew about a very obscure switch, and he told them to flip that switch from primary to auxiliary. It was so obscure that nobody even knew what this switch was, and the crew didn't even know where to find it. But they eventually did, they flipped it, and everything went back to normal. Woohoo! And they could continue on with the mission. John Aaron earned the nickname of Steely-Eyed Missile Man, which is literally my favorite nickname in the history of all nicknames. The Yankee Clipper, which was the command service module, and the Intrepid, which was the LEM, continued on towards the moon, and on November 19, Conrad and Bean landed on the moon, and they landed in a way that demonstrated precision in the landing that was not accomplished by Apollo 11, which is important for future missions. They needed to be precise in where they landed because there were specific areas that were set up for future missions for scientific reasons. They spent just over 31 hours on the moon, with about seven of those being the moonwalk. So they added a significant amount of time to the moonwalk, and then they splashed down on November 24 after a successful mission. 
Apollo 13 is the other most famous Apollo mission, I would wager, and is not famous for a good reason. Let's put it that way. Jim Lovell was the commander, and Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes were the other two crew members, and they were flying the Odyssey and the Aquarius. Launched on April 11, 1970, first mission into the 1970s decade. It was going well, but they were plagued a little bit by bad luck right from the beginning. Ken Mattingly was originally supposed to be the command module pilot. Two days before the launch, just two days after all the training they had done, he was exposed to the measles, and he was forced to be scrubbed from the mission and replaced by Jack Swigert. 55 hours into the mission, an explosion in one of the oxygen tanks crippled the service module. And they started losing oxygen, they started losing power, and they were in mortal danger. They're, to be honest, they should not have survived, to put it bluntly. But they powered down the command module to save what power they did have, and they used the lunar module as a lifeboat. They powered it up quickly, used it as a lifeboat, and they actually used the LEMS engine to help with their trajectory. The mission to the moon was off. The mission now was just to survive. And they used the moon as the way to get back to Earth. They did a free return trajectory, whipped around the moon, came back, and they actually did, against all odds, splash down safely on April 17, 1970. It was deemed a successful failure because they did not go to the moon, but they successfully survived. Honestly, I could talk a ton about Apollo 13. But what I'm going to tell you is you should just watch the movie. Ron Howard made a great movie. It is not a documentary, of course, so they did take some liberties with the story. But it is fairly historically accurate, and it does a good job of showing the Apollo 13 mission. And, of course, Tom Hanks plays Jim Lovell, so anything with Tom Hanks is going to be good. So I'd highly recommend it. And honestly, it does a better job of telling this story than I could in this short amount of time that I have. So let's move on to Apollo 14. Apollo 14 was commanded by Alan Shepard. He's back. He had an experimental surgery which allowed him to basically be healed from his Meniere's disease and restored to flight status. Originally, he was slated to command Apollo 13, but because he'd been on been off flight status for so long he needed more time to train was bumped to Apollo 14 fortunately for him he commanded Apollo 14 with Stu Rusa and Ed Mitchell and they launched on January 31 1970 in the Kitty Hawk with the Antares as the lunar module call sign the most famous thing about Apollo 13 is the golf ball incident they got on the moon Mitchell and Shepard and Al Shepard had taken a six iron head of a golf club and he had attached it to a tool that was used to scoop up lunar dust. And he hit two golf balls on the moon. He duffed one of them. And the second one, he hit pretty well, considering that he could barely see his feet with his helmet on. He could only swing it one-handed and his mobility was impaired at best. But he, he got good contact on the second ball and he said, quote, It's going for miles and miles and miles which was an extreme exaggeration, but a funny tongue-in-cheek thing to say on the moon. Remastered images that people have taken a look at show that the golf ball traveled about 40 feet. So not the, uh, excuse me, 40 yards. Not the most impressive hit, but impressive considering his restrictions. Fun little fact, the same guy that did the remastering of the pictures and analyzed them has said that if... A PGA-level golfer, say like a Bryson DeChambeau, was able to get a solid PGA-level drive on a golf ball on the moon. They could potentially drive that ball about 3.4 miles with a hang time of 1 minute and 22 seconds. So if you do get a good hit on a golf ball on the moon, it's going to go a long stinking ways. Alan Shepard did not get a good hit on it. But that was the highlight of Apollo 14, and 
After being on the moon for a while, they splashed down on February 9, 1971 after a successful mission. Apollo 15 was concerned a lot with the geological makeup of the moon. Dave Scott, Alfred Warden, and James Irwin were on that mission on the Endeavor and the Falcon. And they spent a lot of their training leading up to the mission learning field geology techniques as well as spending time in the classroom learning about geology. They were astronauts. They were pilots. They weren't trained in these scientific methods, but they used their training to learn as much as they could so that they could keep their exploration of the moon as scientifically responsible as they could. And so on July 26, 1971, they launched and they stayed on the moon for nearly 67 hours. And they did three different moonwalks. And they totaled about 18 and a half hours outside of the lunar module. Best thing about Apollo 15, first mission to use the lunar rover. And I think the lunar rover has got to be the most American thing in the history of the world. Because not only did we go to the moon, that wasn't good enough for us. No, we took a stinking dune buggy to the moon. We flipping drove that thing. It was awesome. Americans don't just walk on the moon. We flipping drive on the moon. Let's go. The lunar rover allowed them to explore large, larger areas and to get a better scientific understanding of the geological makeup of the different parts of the moon. And after their extensive time exploring and getting scientific research done, they splashed down on August 7, 1971. They were followed up by Apollo 16, and that was comprised of John Young. Ken Mattingly did get his chance to fly in space on Apollo 16, and Charles Duke was the third crew member. Interestingly enough, Charles Duke was the guy who originally exposed Ken Mattingly to the measles, causing him to be scrubbed from Apollo 13. Kind of weird. They flew in the command module Casper and the lunar module Orion, and they did a lot of the same type of thing as Apollo 16, lots of scientific experiments, and they drove the rover again. And they came back to Earth April 27, 1972. Final mission to the moon, Apollo 17. Eugene Cernan, Ronald Evans, and Harrison Smith excuse me, Harrison Schmidt, were on the flight. And Harrison Smith, Schmidt, first scientist astronaut. He was a geologist by trade and was accepted into the astronaut program and flew to the moon to do a more robust scientific survey of the geology of the moon. They took off December 6, 1972 in the America, the command module, and the Challenger, lunar module. And, again, did more geological experiments and sampling. They came back to Earth on December 19, 1972. And Eugene Cernan, as of June 8, 2021, when I am recording this, is the last person to have had his feet planted in lunar dust. He was the last person to leave the moon to get onto the lunar module before they flew home. And that is the missions to the moon. Twelve men have set foot on the moon, and twelve men only. There were supposed to be Apollo 18, 19, and 20. They were cut by congressional budget cuts. So 12 is where it has ended, and as of now, that is a very exclusive club that nobody has joined since 1972. Small little postscript to the end of this mission, <laughs> end of this mission, end of this podcast episode, excuse me. There was one more somewhat Apollo mission that flew a few years later, July 15 to 24, 1975. There was what's called the Apollo-Soyuz mission. An Apollo spacecraft and a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft docked in orbit around the Earth, and the crews exchanged handshakes in space and also completed experiments and did TV broadcast while exploring the other person's spacecraft. It was an important moment in the Cold War. It was an important moment in the 
experiment of detente, trying to lessen tensions between the Soviets and the United States. But the reason I mention it specifically is because the Apollo-Soyuz mission was the mission where Deke Slayton finally got his chance to fly in space. He was one of the original seven astronauts, had the heart defect that grounded him during Mercury, stayed on at NASA in a office role, a desk jockey, as they would call him, and waited, bided his time, finally got the go-ahead from the doctors, and in 1975, finally got his chance to fly into space. Great moment for Deke Slayton. So happy that he got to fly into space. I don't know why. I don't know the guy. It's long in the past. But every time I read that, I'm just like, good for Deke. He did it. And that seems like the perfect spot to end this podcast episode about Apollo, but also to bring an end to the Space Race series that I've been working on. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. This was one of my absolute favorite topics to study so far. I think this is going to go down as one of the best series that I do in this entire podcast. And I think, in my biased opinion, I really hit my stride with these episodes. And hopefully from now on, the quality just gets better and better and the content just gets more and more interesting. I appreciate you coming and listening. Tune in next time to the Curiosity Chronicles for something a little different. I'm going to introduce a new type of episode that I like to call Sundry Stuff Segments. So if you're curious what that turns out to be, tune in to the Curiosity Chronicles. But until next time, I am Brett Bilesma, your host, and I hope that you stay curious. Curious.